before I pray, I want to say this, that uh, <clears throat> I've gotten to talk, um, excuse me, I've gotten to talk into, into, you know, different places and stuff like that, like public, you know, just doing different things, speaking publicly, I've gotten to do that at different times, and as far as like I'm looking across it, I know I don't know everybody, of course, but I'm looking, you know, brothers, sisters, family that I love. This is a, such a privilege to get to take God's word to my family and say, here it is. Here's Christ. This is just a privilege to get to do this. So I just want to say that before I pray. <laughs> I don't have any announcements like I'm leaving or anything. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm sorry. Uh, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and for allowing us to open it now. God, you're so good. You're just awesome, Lord. And I praise you for these, these, uh, these truths in your word that allow us to see it. Oh, I long for the day we get to see you face to face. We just get to see you in all your glory, high and lifted up. And I long for that day, God, but I am so thankful that while we're still in these bodies, still on this earth, Lord, that you give us your word to get glimpses of your grace and glory. God, you know and we all know that, that all of us here are very weak. We're so weak. So we need your help. I need your help to clearly explain your word and the glory in it. And all of us here need help. Every, every hearer of your word now needs help to hear and to see you in your, see you in your greatness. Help us, Lord, to be encouraged and challenged and built up and comforted God, whatever the need is. You know it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're in Mark chapter 12. If you haven't been with us before, uh, we're just on a verse-by-verse study coming through the book of Mark. And so today, we landed in Mark chapter 12, verse 18. Before we read that passage, let me say a few things just about the setting that we're in. Uh, if you begin in Mark chapter 11, chapter 11, verse 1, you're starting the last week of Jesus' life before he's crucified. And this also happens to be the Jewish Passover week where just tons of people are flooding into Jerusalem. Jerusalem would literally swell to several times its normal size. I mean, you can even just read in the scriptures, you see Greeks there, you see people from all over the place flooding to Jerusalem, it's swelling to this massive size, and all the religious leaders that are there, this is like their heyday, right? This is like their time to shine. This is their moment. But in Mark chapter 11, Jesus comes riding in on a donkey, and he's going to spoil their moment. And this is the last, it begins the last week of Jesus' life before he's crucified. And so Jesus, from from when we started in Mark chapter 11 verse 1, has caused quite a scene up to this point. He rode in on a donkey as a Zechariah 9-9 king, and this ticked off all the religious leaders. And then after that, the next day, he goes into their temple and he begins to rebuke them and clean house. 
And he actually rebukes them for their false religion. And this really angers the religious leaders of his day. It was their time to shine. And here he is messing it up. He's just messing it all up, right? And then he just straight up gets in their face and, and calls them pretty much Christ killers and God haters. He just gets right in their face and says that this is what's happened so far beginning in Mark chapter 11, verse 1. And that really made him angry. Really made him angry. So in our passage today, what we're going to see is Jesus continuing to battle it out with the religious leaders there in Jerusalem. And so read it with me. Verse 18. Then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Him and they asked Him saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and dying he left no offspring. And the second took her and he died nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last, last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken." All right, beginning in uh, verse 18. Let's start in verse 18. It says right here, let me read it again. Then some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him. Okay, then some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection. Okay, so who are these people? The Sadducees, who are these people? Who are the Sadducees? What do they believe? What are they like? This is what we want to talk about for just a minute. They're a religious party. They're a sect of the Jews, the Sadducees, and they are bitter opponents of the Pharisees. If you read the account in Acts 23, verse 6 through 10, you'll see that. You see, Paul actually gives them a question that pits Sadducee versus Pharisee, and they start fighting with one another, okay? They are bitter opponents with the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in resurrection, the resurrection to come. They believed in angels, they believed in spirits, they believed in all these things, and yet the Sadducees did not believe in any of these things. Okay, they, they did not believe in the supernatural. And you can see that in Acts 23, verse 8. The Pharisees took all of the Old Testament Scriptures together that we have as the Old Testament. He took them all together and they added a bunch of stuff. I mean, they would just endlessly add to the Word of God. And this is how the, Pharisee, excuse me, the, the Pharisees rolled. And then the way the Sadducees rolled is they said just the first five books, the Torah, that's the only thing that's authoritative. Okay, So they're very different. These are, they were bitter opponents. The Sadducees were normally educated, wealthy, sophisticated, politically powerful. These are the kind of men that would consider themselves Sadducees. And Jesus had warned his disciples earlier. 
It's in Matthew chapter 16, verse 12. He had warned his disciples, beware of the doctrine of the Sadducees. Beware. So what doctrine do the Sadducees come? They come into Jesus, right? And what, what false doctrine do they have in their heart as they come to him on this day? And it's that shameful doctrine that there is no resurrection. There is no resurrection is what they say. You can see that in verse 18. That's actually how they're described. The Sadducees in verse 18 who what? Who say there is no resurrection. That's the description you're given. They're coming to him about that. And then at the end of their question in verse 23, they, they end the question like this. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise... See, this is what they're attacking, the doctrine of the resurrection that's coming. And then you also see as Jesus comes in and he cuts that false doctrine with a sword, he actually says in verse 26, but concerning the dead that they rise. So what they're coming against here is the resurrection. The, the, uh, there was a historian during this time named Josephus. He said this about the Sadducees. Their doctrine is this, that the souls die with the bodies. The souls die with the body. So they did not believe in the eternality of the soul. And they did, not, they did not believe in the resurrection of the body in that last day. These were Sadducees. <clears throat> now, it says next here in the same verse, verse 18. The Sadducees who say there's no resurrection did what? They came to him and they asked him, Saying, so here, here they are. Now, Jesus is in, the, is in the midst of an onslaught of attack against him. All the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem are coming against him one after, one after another. Okay, Jesus is in the temple in repetitive fashion, just one after the other, one after the other is coming at him over and over again. The high ups and the spiritual elites, they come against him and they want to shame him and they want to discredit him. And the Sadducees just happen to be one of those groups. The first group that did it was the chief priest. The elders and the scribes in chapter 11, verse 27. If you remember, they came to Jesus asking him a question and they were challenging his authority. They said, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus turned it on them and asked them a little question that made them look dumb. They come to Jesus saying, we don't know. They don't know the answer to his question. So he, he, just, he just dominates them. And then the second group in chapter 12, verse 13, it's the Pharisees and the Herodians. They try to trap Jesus in his words. But Jesus uses this as an opportunity to display His supreme wisdom. And those guys walk away with their tails between their legs. And all the people around begin to marvel at Jesus in His wisdom as you read that passage. Don't you love that? That these people are coming to discredit Jesus. The enemy's coming to discredit Him, to demean Him. And Jesus turns that as an opportunity to display His great wisdom before all the multitudes. And now you got the Sadducees. In our verse, our passage today, the Sadducees, they come to Jesus. Now, what were, the, what were their motives? They wanted to discredit Jesus, right? They want to discredit Him. If they can discredit Him beforehand, before all the people, all these multitudes of people gathered in Jerusalem, if they can just discredit Him, they don't have to crucify Him. And here they're going to try to discredit Him. They want to embarrass Him. They want to make Him look foolish and stupid before all these people. And this is the aim of these Sadducees. Okay, They were not coming to Jesus with a sincere question. They didn't have a sincere question of, of no, no really, I see this verse in the Bible and I'm just wrestling over truth in God's Word. That's not it. They were coming to discredit Him. They were coming with vile intentions to pull down the name of Christ. Everybody knew. Everybody knew that Jesus believed in the resurrection. He spoke of it often. 
He had just a few days earlier here had risen Lazarus from the dead. And even his followers said, we know that he'll be raised in the resurrection. Jesus believed in the resurrection and everyone knew it. And these arrogant people, they think that they can cut down that silly doctrine with just a few little, little quote from Scripture and a little explanation. They're going to they're gonna come in and try to cut it down. And in their pomp and in their pride, they're going to put this poor Galilee into shame. And that's the goal of the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees actually asked the question. You see it in verses 19 through 23. And the Sadducees, they asked Jesus a question. Now, here's how they start. They start with a little bit of flattery. They say, teacher. Just using a little flattery there. Teacher, they say in verse 19. They did not really view Jesus as a legitimate teacher. But this is how they start their question. This is the same way the Pharisees and the Herodians, remember how they started their questioning just a, just a section earlier? They said, teacher, we know that you are true. They just begin with his flattering words and putting them in the ear of Jesus as they come to try to shame him and discredit him. Now, I want you to beware of flattery. Let this be something that warns you. Beware of flattery. The most vile twisters of the truth deceitfully employ it right here in this passage. Beware of flattery. In your flesh, you will desire to be a man pleaser. And therefore, in your flesh, you will have a tendency to flatter. But listen, the truth of God, the truth of God and His Word does not tend to flatter you. Beware of flattery. And you're actually going to see this as Jesus, we're going to get there, but as Jesus actually responds to these people in a minute, you're going to see zero flattery. In fact, He's going to start off saying, you're wrong. Plain and simple. Beware of flattery. Men will use flattery to deceive you. And I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't use it here. Okay, okay, so here's what they do. They say, teacher, teacher. They use this flattery. And then they move right into quoting of Old Testament Scripture. Or they, they kind of reference an Old Testament Scripture in verse 19. You see what it says? Moses wrote to us. Moses wrote to us. Did you know that verse quoting is not the ultimate test of sound doctrine. Now, I'm a big fan of verse quoting. I love verse quoting because I think the Word of God is powerful and we need to use it. But we must know that it is not the ultimate litmus test of whether or not somebody is speaking truth or lies. Here they're quoting a verse. The Scriptures can be taken and then twisted and said to mean something that they don't actually mean. Therefore, beware of the twisting of the Scripture. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. Peter warns his readers against those not who, not who neglect the Word. He doesn't warn his readers against those who ignore the Word of God. He warns, the, he warns his readers against those who twist the Word of God. You actually have to know a little bit of it to be able to twist it. And this is what's happening with the Sadducees. I heard a man say one time, and it was actually at the... I believe it was Mike Boyette, I think, who had, one of the guys who laid hands on uh, Dustin and I sent us out. He said, um, his quote was something like this. Uh, Every good heresy comes out of someone's quiet time. And I remember that sticking with me. Every good heresy comes out of somebody's, this was a good one. Okay, it's going to have just a little truth mixed in there. Sharing the verse from the Bible, and then they begin to extrapolate on the truth okay now what scripture do the sadducees use right here they use deuteronomy and if you want to you can flip back there with me hold your place so we won't be there long they quote or reference 
Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5 and 6. Let's read it and just get the plain sense of this, okay? Here's what the Sadducees bring to Jesus. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed the name of, of his dead brother, that his name not, may not be blotted out of Israel. So you got a man and woman married. He dies before there's children. And what they're saying, that the, the brother of this man, there's this responsibility, this customer, this brother would take her as his wife. Of course, if he wasn't married himself already. Would take, would take her as his wife. And the first child they have would actually be as if it was the child of that dead man. To continue on his inheritance. To protect widows from falling into poverty and these kind of things. This is a long-standing tradition. It's already been going down. We see it in Genesis chapter 38. We already have seen this happen. And here we see God regulating this practice in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And this is the verse that they bring to Jesus. And the Sadducees reference this Old Testament verse. And then they're going to try to take this idea. And they're going to try to twist it and turn it to mean something that it doesn't actually mean. And how do they do this? Well, they quote the scripture in verse 19. So go back with them to Mark 12. Listen to them in Mark 12, 19. Listen how they quote or reference this verse. Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. That's Deuteronomy 25, right? And now what they're going to do is they're going to they're going to apply some supposed logic to this to this text of scripture in order to prove a point, to make some sort of a point here, okay? And we see this in verses 20 to 23. Listen to the logic. They, they've quoted the verse. Now here's the logic, the supposed logic they're going to try to add to the verse. Listen. Now there were seven brothers. They're going to tell a little story. Now there were seven brothers. First took a wife, dying, he left no offspring. So according to Deuteronomy 25, what do they do? The second brother took her and he died. Nor did he leave any offspring. And the third, likewise, this is getting ridiculous. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also, which at this point was a mercy from God. <laughs> Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. You see the predicament they're trying to set up here? trying to disprove the resurrection. They're going to use this little verse and then do this little ridiculous extrapolation off the verse and this story to try to make it mean something that it doesn't actually mean. Now, here, here's some problems with this logical extrapolation. Here's some problems. One, it's full of assumption. It's full of assumption. They assume that if these Sadducees are assuming that if there is a resurrection to come, that it wouldn't be a whole lot different than the world we live in right now. They don't see the power of God in creating a new world. Instead, they, they, they just think if there is a resurrection, everything will kind of be, just be like an upgraded version of what we already have. In fact, they, it doesn't even enter their mind that maybe there's not even marriage in this coming resurrection. Maybe there's not even marriage in this world to come. That doesn't even enter their mind. 
Something else wrong with this. They're actually using a Bible verse that has nothing to do with the resurrection from the dead to make a point about the coming resurrection from the dead. And that is a big problem. We call this scriptural gymnastics or truth twisting tactics. And this is what they do. Beware of people who irresponsibly, and I'm, I'm looking to you now, beware of people who irresponsibly handle God's word like this. Well, if A equals B and B equals C and C equals D, then surely Jesus is just a man, right? Beware of these sort of things, okay? These twisting of the Scriptures. We're called to, in 2 Timothy 2.15, we're called to be diligent in order to rightly divide the Word of Truth. And yet what we see the Sadducees doing here, and it's happened all throughout history and it happens today, is what we see the Sadducees doing is wrongly dividing the Word of Truth. Now, I want you to think about this. The Sadducees have sat back. They've seen the elders and the chief priests go. They've seen the Pharisees and the Herodians go. They have had plenty of time to come up with this argument to cut down the resurrection and demean Jesus. They've had plenty of time, right? To come up with their argument. And this is their best shot. It's the best they got. Can you think of how many times that they probably, remember they're, they're opponents of the Pharisees. How many times have they taken this same argument, same verse, same little cute story, and they applied it to the Pharisees and the, the Pharisees' mouths were shut. They didn't know what to say. And now they try to bring their best argument to Jesus. Now I want you to notice one thing here. If you read the very end of their argument, verse 23, I just want you to notice their, their redundant pride. Just prideful. Listen, listen to verse 23. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, that's redundant, right? Can you hear the pomp in that? Therefore, in the, in, in the resurrection, you know, uh, when they rise, you know, we're talking about when they rise up, whose wife will she be then? Do you hear this arrogance? And how many times have they done that to the Pharisees? And then they walk off arrogant and triumphant, their intellectual triumph over these Pharisees. And now they give it to Jesus. And they're just getting ready to walk off triumphantly from the battlefield. They beat Him intellectually right there. But then Jesus, having patiently endured their nonsense, opens His mouth. Verse 24 through 27 shows us Jesus' response. And the first thing we get in Jesus' response, listen to it. Jesus answered and said to them, are you not therefore mistaken? The first thing we get is the rebuke from Jesus. Are you not therefore mistaken? The ESV says it like this. Is this not the reason you are wrong? He just straight up tells them. I love that. You got this build up, all these people coming to Jesus, argument after argument. And the first thing Jesus looks at them and says, you're just wrong. You look at the account in Matthew, he just says it like a command and a statement. You are wrong. You are mistaken. It's literally, you are deceived is what Jesus tells them right off the bat. And this rebuke sandwiches his whole argument. He starts with it in verse 24. You are wrong. You are deceived. And if you read the very end of his argument, verse 27, the last sentence, you are therefore greatly mistaken. So he begins with, are you not mistaken? And he ends with, you are greatly mistaken. He, he starts with, you are wrong, and he ends with, you are really wrong. You're just really wrong. His thesis statement at the beginning is, you're wrong. And his conclusion, his summary statement at the end, is, you are wrong. He just straight up tells them, he rebukes them, and tells them that they are wrong. Did you know 
that straightforward rebukes, not beating around the bush, sometimes can be Christ-like? Did you know that? He hit this false teaching head on. No apology for his boldness. No apology for his straightforwardness. He just goes right after him. Okay, In this relative culture we live in, where everybody is right, and the only person that's wrong is the person that says somebody else is wrong. In this kind of culture, be, beware of being tainted by that. To where you begin to think in the same way. Listen, God is right. Let God be true and every man a liar. God is right. Whatever He says goes, period. And if we do a thing or say a thing or think a thing contrary to God's Word, we are wrong. And it's okay to say it. It's even Christ-like at times to say it that we are wrong just as Jesus did with the Pharisees. Now what Jesus is going to do after He gives them the rebuke, He's going to give them the reason. Why? How did they get wrong? Where did they go wrong? How did they become deceived? And you see it here in verse 24. Because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God. Because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God. These men did not know the Scriptures. These men were unskilled in Bible. They were ignorant of God's Word. Think about what Jesus did. He just looked at a group of men, the Sadducees, who just quoted a verse to Him, and He looks back at them and says, you don't know the Bible. You don't know the Scriptures. Which tells me it's very possible to be familiar with the Scriptures. And even to be able to quote a few things, and yet the Lord calls us to something higher. To know the Word of God. Study the Word of God. Be consumed in the Word of God. To obey the Word of God. In the eyes of the gullible, the Sadducees looked like men who knew the Scriptures. But in the eyes of Jesus, ignorance of the Scriptures was their problem. They didn't know the Word of God. Jesus just pretty much tells learned men, he says, the problem with what you're saying is the Bible. That's the problem. They did not know the Scriptures nor the power of God in verse 24. They didn't know the power of God. Their ignorance of the Scripture led them to an ignorance of the power of God. Not only did they not know His Word, but they didn't know His character. They didn't know His attributes. The attributes of God and specifically His power. They didn't know it. Do you know why these Sadducees, made, why did they make the massive mistake of denying the resurrection? Because they're ignorant of the Scriptures and because they limited the power of God. This would have been a shocking thing that Jesus lays on these men. They come to Him wanting to show Jesus that He's mistaken and they're going to use the Scriptures to show Him that He's mistaken and Jesus turns on and He says, no, you're mistaken and you don't know the Scripture. This would have been shocking for these Sadducees to hear this kind of charge. So how would Jesus prove it? How would Jesus prove this claim? And first we see this. First thing Jesus is going to do, He's going he's gonna to deal with their logical extrapolation. He's just going to deal with exactly what they said. They had that little question about, well, whose wife will she be? This woman that had seven husbands because they all died without children. Whose wife will she be? He's going to answer that question first. And here's the answer in verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So the answer to their question. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And the answer is, there is no marriage in heaven. She won't be anyone's wife. But in the resurrection, she'll be like the angels of God. Not knowing the... Here's these Sadducees. Think about it. 
They don't know the power of God. And they could not even conceive a world that was different than their own. They could not conceive a world that has no marriage. They just thought of the world to come as just an upgrade of what they already had. And yet the Lord tells them, this is different. The world, the resurrected state that believers are going to is different. It ain't like this world. It's on a whole nother level. In fact, you'll be like the angels, the eternality of the angels. Think about it. Or the constant and, and continued communion with God that the angels have. He says, this is what you'll have. This is different. The power of God is displayed in the coming resurrection. And according to this verse, it's better than what? Even marriage. The coming resurrection is better than even marriage. Let me tell you this real quick. I shared this at a wedding rehearsal dinner one time. In fact, I think it was Molly and Blaine's. I shared this verse, you know. Marriage is just temporal. It's not eternal. It's going to end one day. You're talking about a romance killer. <laughs> Killed it all. But the point of this is not to demean marriage, okay? The point is to show you that marriage is a picture. It's a shadow of this glorious thing between Christ and His bride. And when Christ returns one day, the marriage will give way. The shadow will cease to exist because the reality of Christ and His church will be full-fledged. The resurrection is going to be good. You want to know how good heaven is? You want to know how glorious the resurrected state is going to be? It's going to be better than marriage. You got a good marriage in here? Marriages are good, right? They're uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually, they're good. They're good things. Marriage is a joy. It's a pleasure. But being with Christ in heaven surpasses all. We will not marry nor be given in marriage in heaven, it says. But we'll be like the angels, seeing the face of our Savior. We'll see His face. Psalm 16 says, fullness of joy. At His right hand, pleasures forevermore. This is what's coming in the resurrected state. I love my wife to the core. And you guys know that. Most of you know that. I love her to the core. And I can't fathom many things that are better than being with my wife and having closeness with my wife. But listen, that is just the point. You cannot fathom nor comprehend the glories that are going to be revealed when Christ Jesus returns and we're with Him forever in heaven. The best imagination in this room cannot imagine how good it will be. Amazing. Joyful. Pleasures forever. In Christ Jesus. In heaven. 1 John 3, 2. Listen to this. Listen, you can't imagine. Beloved, now we are children of God, and yet it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. He says, we don't even know what it's going to be like when we get there. But we know that when, we, when He's revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We don't even know what that's going to be like, but we know we're going to see our Savior face to face. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says that the Lord Jesus is going to descend from heaven with a shout, Voice of an archangel, trumpet of God, the dead in Christ are going to rise. The live in Christ are going to rise. We're going to meet the Lord in there. And these are the most comforting words of Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul, he gets a little bit of glimpse into this glory uh, scene. He gets a little bit of, of a glimpse into this heavenly glory. He gets to see it and he comes back and he says, inexpressible. You go read it, inexpressible. There's no words in any language on earth to express what it's going to be like there. We can't even comprehend it. Without marriage, it's going to be awesome. Oh, the joy. Just think about it. 
Think about the joy that rises in your heart when you get just a little glimpse of Jesus. You just get, you think about it, you're in the Word of God, you're seeking Him in prayer, and man, you just get a little glimpse of your Savior. And you know who He is, and you know Him a little better, it's a new glimpse, and oh, the joy that rises up in your soul. And the Scripture says, 1 Corinthians 13, now we know in part, but then we'll, be, we'll know just as we're known. Now we see dimly, but then we're going to see Him face to face. Every single joyful pleasure on this earth earth will fade into insignificance when we, get, when we come into this constant joy-filled pleasure in Christ Jesus in heaven. It's going to be awesome. Listen to R.C. Sproul on this verse 25. We do not understand the depth of the joy and delight that God has prepared for His people in heaven. If you use your imagination and try to think of the greatest possible experience that you will have in heaven, then multiply the joy you will feel in that moment by a million times. You still will not have begun to appreciate what God is preparing for His people in heaven. Our existence there will be filled with joy far, far exceeding that which the marriage relationship provides in this fallen world. Y'all ready for that? But of course, the Sadducees, they don't know the power of God. And therefore, they limit His ability to create such a, a world filled with joy and expressible. They just limit His power. They don't know the power of God. And therefore, they are dead wrong about the resurrection. Dead wrong. Now, after Jesus deals with their extrapolation of that verse, the ridiculous thing they said about that, after He deals with that, now what Jesus is going to do, He's going he's gonna, to... Get up under the real motives of their question. Remember, they want to they show the, the doctrine of the resurrection to be silly and therefore so show Jesus to be silly and therefore discredit Him. And so Jesus is going to get up under that. Okay, He's going he's gonna to get beneath the real motive, the real intention of their question beginning in verse 26. Read it in verse 26. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses... I love, I love how Jesus perceives what they're really doing. I love how He gets underneath their question. And I love how Jesus takes these men who are guilty of being ignorant of the Scriptures and He takes them straight to the Bible. He says, if you're not read in the book of Moses, He takes them straight to the Bible. The Word of God is our tool, right? For doing this very thing. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scriptures God breathed and it's profitable for rebuking, for correcting. It's just for, this is the tool, right? And here we see Jesus employing it. Jesus has dealt with people all throughout the Gospels. People that come to Him to twist the Scriptures. He's dealt with them this way. Have you not read? He takes them straight back to the Bible over and over and over again. When Satan tried to do it in Matthew chapter 4, remember the second temptation? Satan quotes two verses to him. And Jesus comes back and says, It is also written... Let me go to Matthew 12. Just hold your place. This is my favorite one. You don't have to know this to get the point of Mark 12, but this, this is my favorite example of this. Just listen. This time it's the Pharisees. I want you to see Jesus takes them straight back to the Bible. Just straight to it. Straight to the Scriptures that they're ignorant of. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 2, when the Pharisees saw it, they said to Him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Here's these guys adding to the Scriptures, twisting the Scriptures. He says, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So what, what does Jesus do? Listen to the, the threefold Scripture attack. 
Verse 3, But he said to them, Have you not read what David did? He points them back to the Bible what David did. And then verse 5, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, and he points them right back to the Bible, have you not read that? And then verse 7 he says, And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He quotes Hosea 6.6 to them. Threefold scripture attack. These people come to him, twisting the word of God, adding to the word of God. He says, have you not read, David, have you not read the law? And let me quote Hosea 6.6 to you, because if you just knew what that meant. Jesus came, go back to Mark 12. Jesus came right to him with the Bible. Now, Jesus could have, you think about it. He comes to him, he opens the Bible to him. He could have gone anywhere in the Old Testament, right? Anywhere in the Old Testament. He could have gone to Daniel 12 to prove the resurrection. He could have gone to Psalm 16. Psalm 17, Isaiah, Job, etc. All over the Old Testament. He could have gone and yet where does Jesus go? He takes them to the book of Moses. He takes them to the book. Of, this is the only book. Remember that the Sadducees saw it to be authoritative. And he takes them straight to their book. Supposedly their book. They consider, the Sadducees consider themselves experts in the book of Moses. They, they, you, you imagine, they stumped, if you read like Josephus and this historical stuff, they stumped a lot of Pharisees on this sort of thing. Resurrection is not in the book of Moses. They, they thought they had the monopoly on the book of Moses. And don't you love it that Jesus, in showing them that they're wrong, comes in and takes them straight into that book, which they consider themselves to be experts of. And where does Jesus take them in the book of Moses? And we see it right here. It's still in verse 26 and 27. In the burning bush passage. Now that's Exodus chapter 3. This is the way you referenced it before there was chapter verse divisions. In the burning bush passage. How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. So Jesus takes him straight into Exodus chapter 3 verse 6. He takes them right to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. And you think about it, by the time Exodus 3, in history, by the time you get to this point in history, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been dead for over 400 years. They've been dead. And yet God identifies Himself presently as the God. I am, not I was, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. He does not say, I was their God, but now they're dead. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He identifies himself 400 years after their death as presently their God. Why? Because they're still alive. They're still living. And Jesus gives the explanation in verse 27. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. There is life after death. The soul is eternal, according to Jesus. And there is most definitely a resurrection from the dead. You imagine what's happening at this point. The crowd, remember, crowds around this, seeing this go down. The crowds are amazed at this point. Jesus just dominated the, the Sadducees on their own turf. He just went right into their own expertise of the book of Moses and He just dominated them right there on their own turf. And the crowds are amazed. It says in the account in Matthew, it says, when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at Jesus' teaching. So they're amazed. The Sadducees, they're angry and pitiful, running off like a scalded dog. The Pharisees, what are they doing? They're saying, man, why don't we think of that? And there, everybody's amazed. Jesus has just displayed His glorious wisdom to these crowds. 
takeaways. I've got three takeaways for you. Three takeaways. That's the end of our passage. Let me give you three takeaways. Takeaway number one is this. And I think this is the main point of it. The main thing you're supposed to take away, so I'm going to give it first. And the takeaway is this. Behold your Savior. Look at Him. Look at, look at Jesus. Look at your Savior. Jesus is so awesome. Wave after wave of heavy opposition comes against Him to scare Him, to trap Him in His words, to catch Him off guard, to put Him to shame, because if they can discredit Him, they don't have to crucify Him. And Jesus never fails. Never falters, never flinches, never frets, never forgets. Never one time does He fall. This is awesome. Jesus is awesome. Wave after wave, wave after wave, politically power, vindictive delegations come on Jesus like a flood. And what does He do? He effortlessly, with a spiritual sword, stabs every one of them in the heart and sends them away crying. Jesus is the last man standing. Behold your Savior. Behold your Savior. His patience is otherworldly. His patience is otherworldly. He's not under one tiny ounce of obligation to just sit there and endure these arrogant men. He's not under one ounce of obligation to endure their hate and their pride. He doesn't have to do that. He has every resource accessible to Him to pour out wrath and kill Him in that moment. And yet He waits. Oh, the patience of Jesus is otherworldly. He just endures their ridicule and He endures their mockery. His wisdom, behold your Savior, His wisdom is unmatched. Scribes, elders, chief priests, Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees, all of them whip out their little flickering flame of so-called wisdom. And Jesus shines forth, forth His wisdom like the rays of the bright sun. He shames them all. No man, woman, Doctor, lawyer, or scholar, or genius can hold a candle, not one candle, to the infinite wisdom of Jesus. Behold your Savior. This is your Savior. We are so stupid at times to doubt His wisdom, to disobey His commands, to not trust in His promises. Let's just face the facts. We need to just face the facts here that Jesus knows better than we do. You got friends that say something different than the Word of Christ? The Word stands true. Your feelings say something different than the Word of Christ? The Word of God stands true. Your past experience says something different than the Word of Christ? The Word of God stands true. We just stand on His Word. He's always right. 1 Corinthians 1.25 says this, The foolishness, even the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Oh, that we would rest in His infinite wisdom. Behold your Savior. His goodness his goodness is absolutely incredible. He's so good that even marriage is just a dim little picture. It's just a dim picture of the good things that are come for those who are in Christ Jesus. Marriage is oh so good, and yet it's not even worthy of existence in heaven because of the goodness of Christ. Behold your Savior. Second takeaway. Know the Scriptures and the power of God. Know the Scriptures and the power of God. Just as the Sadducees twisted the Scriptures to demean Jesus and propagate their false 
doctrines, even so it happens today. And you'll face it. Know the Scriptures. Don't be deceived. All of this is the, is the work of the ultimate twister of the truth. And He's our adversary, the devil. You must be ready to handle God's Word with maturity. 2 Timothy 2.15 Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. With the Word of truth, be diligent. This is going to take some hard work. And yet for those who love God's Word, it is a diligence of delight. We must be equipped and ready to do what Jude said in Jude 3. Listen to what he said. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. You must be equipped. You must be ready. What are you doing with the Word of God? Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Every, there, are many, there are many people in here that feel like, you feel like God's called you into some sort of role of leadership. For example, leadership in this church or leadership, for example, as a missionary somewhere else. Listen to me. Every single person, you must be able to do something like what Jesus just did with these Sadducees. Listen to Titus chapter 1, verse 9. This is a requirement for leaders. Holding fast the faithful word as he's been taught, that he might be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. You must be able to do this. And by the way, 1 Peter 5.3 says that leaders stand not, not as the elites among the group, but they stand as examples to the flock. Therefore, every member of Christ's church runs in the same example. You must be able to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Be challenged by this passage to know the Scriptures and the power of God. And listen, as you know the Scriptures, more and more and more, you're going to know the power of God. You're going to see the power of God in His Word. And as you see the power of God, your eyes are open to that, you're going to want more and more of the Scriptures. And you're going to be in this glorious cycle of I see the Scriptures, I see the glory of God. I see the Scriptures, I see His power. And I want more and more and more. And, and I just want you to think about it. How sad, how sad. Our, our level sometimes is so low how sad is the state of the church so often? How sad is that state where we're so ignorant of the Scriptures and therefore we're unfamiliar with the power of God and therefore our faith is weak? The church in this culture, how sad is that state? Are you in pursuit? Are you in pursuit of knowing God's Word? Not by the standards of the culture, not by those standards. By the standards of the Bible. Are you in an all-out pursuit of the Word of God? May I never be caught. Jesus looking at me saying, you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God. What are you doing with God's Word? Today. Today. What are you doing with God's Word? Tomorrow. What are you doing with God's Word? Next week. What are you doing with God's Word? Next month. What are you doing with His Word? For the rest of, his life, for the rest of your life, what are you doing with the Word of God? Oh, the power of the Word of God. Think, think, just think with me for a minute. Go there for a minute. You don't even have to write it down. You don't have to flip in your Bible. Just think with me for a minute of how the Bible describes itself. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, The Word of God is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Job 23.12 says the Word of God is of more value than your daily intake of food. Listen to it. I have treasured the words of His mouth more than my necessary food. Jeremiah 23.29 says, Is not my word like a fire? 
and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. What are you using to break the hard hearts of men? Psalm 19, it says this about His Word. It's a soul reviver. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's a wisdom giver. The testimony of the, of the Word is sure, making wise the simple. Psalm 119, excuse me, Psalm 19 goes on to say that the Word of God is desirable and it's tasty. More to be desired are they than gold, yet much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Psalm 56.10 shows God's Word being praised. Listen, in God, I will praise His Word. In the Lord, I will praise His Word. Psalm 119.11 calls it a sin killer. Your Word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. What are you killing sin with? Psalm 119.50 says the word is a comfort in affliction. This is my comfort in affliction for your word has given me life. Psalm 119.72 said it's better than a million dollars. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. Psalm 119.97 says it's lovable and it's worthy of constant meditation. Oh, how I love your law and it is my meditation all day long. Psalm 119.105 says it's a guide. Your word is a light to my path, a lamp to my feet. Psalm 119.162 says it's a treasure. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. And Jesus speaks of the word of God as a source of life in Matthew 4.4. Man doesn't live by bread alone. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, the word of God is powerful. And Jesus looks at these Sadducees in our passage today. You think about it. These Sadducees who knew Deuteronomy 25. And Jesus looks at these Sadducees who have Bible verses memorized. And he, he looks at these Sadducees and he says, have you not read? Because they're ignorant of the scriptures. Think about that. What about you? Have you not read? What are you doing with God's Word? What are you doing with the Bible? Know the Scriptures. Know the power of God. Third takeaway. Prepare for the resurrection of the dead. Prepare for the resurrection of the dead. I want to be very, very simple here. And the reason why I want to be simple is because I want you to zone in with me. And you think about a couple things, Okay? I just want you to come right here with me and just zone in on a couple of things. I don't have no profound truth except just the plain meaning of these verses we're about to read. And you just, you just come in with me, okay? And I want you to think about some of these things I'm about to say to you, okay? There will be something called a resurrection of the dead. Jesus just proved it to the Sadducees. There will be a resurrection from the dead. Listen to Acts 24, 15. There will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. The just will rise. These are those who are in Christ Jesus, who have repented of their sins and turned to Christ in faith. They're in Christ and they are prepared for the coming resurrection. This is the just that will rise. They're ready for that resurrection. And this resurrection will be a most glorious event to them that they look forward to. Listen to Romans 8, verse 23. We ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. The just will rise. What about the unjust? The unjust will rise. These unjust are those who have not Christ. They don't have Christ. 
And if this is you, I don't know everyone in this room, that's you, you are unprepared for the coming resurrection. You know that? Zone in with me. You are unprepared. You're going to rise, and yet you're unprepared for the coming resurrection. Every single one of the unjust will, will come before God and they'll stand trial. And every one of your sins will be exposed before this God. And, and, and this is the most terrifying thing you have ever dreamed of. Because the end note of that judgment and the unjust rising is they spend eternity in the lake of fire. Forever and ever eternal torment. Listen to, listen to Daniel 12 too. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, that's death. <coughs> Daniel 12 too. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, that's death, shall awake, this is this resurrection, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now I want to highlight the word everlasting. Prepare for the resurrection because eternity is at stake. Prepare for the resurrection because of this word everlasting. Eternity is at stake here. In the resurrection, some will rise to eternal life. Some will rise to eternal shame and contempt. To every person here who is without Christ, and therefore, you're without salvation. If you're without Christ, you're without salvation. Let me speak to you. Please don't ignore this. Eternity is at stake. It's not a game. You never know when your time is up. You never know when your life is ended. You never know when Christ may return. You, this can come on you unexpectedly, and you be found without Christ, and you'll be in hell forever. There's a resurrection coming. And the unjust will rise. Not everybody here who, who has obtained salvation, but you are in Christ Jesus. Let me speak to you, my brothers and sisters, my know. Let me challenge you for a minute. Are you, just think about the question, are you a practical Sadducee? Are you a practical Sadducee? And what do I mean by that? I know you're not a doctrinal Sadducee. I know that. I know you're not a doctrinal Sadducee. I know that you do not hold to the doctrine of the Sadducees that you would never in a minute say, there's no resurrection coming and, and there's no eternity and our souls just cease. I know you're not a doctrinal Sadducee. You would never say such a thing. But are you a practical Sadducee? Are you a Sadducee in practice? Are you a Sadducee in action? In other words, think about it. If you really believed, if you really believe that every person you have ever or ever will come into contact with will enter into the resurrection of the just and the unjust, and it will either be eternal torment or eternal joy, how will this change you? And if you know that you have the glorious gospel message of Christ Jesus, crucified for sins, risen from the dead, and most people are blind to it, you've got it at your grasp to help people to see it. How will this change you if you really believe there's a resurrection of the dead? Would it change your life? What action do you take on this? Think, if you take no action, if you take even little action, then you may be a practical Sadducee, meaning you say you believe in the resurrection to come, but you don't live like it. Think about this with me just for a minute, just to encourage you, challenge you. Every person in your family, and I said I want to be simple here, 
Every single person in your family. There's people in your mind right now. There's people you think about. And every single one of them will rise. Just or unjust, they'll rise. Eternal joy or eternal torment. Every single person in your family. People are going to come to your mind. Every friend you have. Every single friend you have will come into this resurrection. Oh, how does this change things? Every single co-worker you have, there's people in your mind, every single one you have will rise, the just and the unjust. Every single one of them. Who's in your mind? Every single classmate that you have. Every one of them. Every waiter at your favorite restaurant. Every single one of them will rise. It's not the end of their life when they die. They're going to die, but they're going to rise to eternal torment or eternal joy. Every neighbor in your neighborhood, every single one of them will rise. Every stranger that you meet, every single person that you don't know or that you do know, one day is going to face this resurrection of just and the unjust. And man, when they get close to you, I remember I'm talking to you brothers and sisters of Christ, when they get close to you, they've got access to this glorious message that rips them out of the kingdom of darkness and gives them eternal life forever. Don't be a practical Sadducee. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can open your word. Thank you for the glorious truth found there. God, help us to behold you in your, your great glory and majesty and to worship you. Even now as we're about to sing this song, God, let us worship your holy name. Your wisdom, your goodness, your, your, your love, and you died for us at the cross. Thank you, Lord. Help us, Lord. And God, I pray that you would send us out that you would put eternity just right in front of our eyes, God. That you would make us not to just say that we believe in the resurrection, but you would help us to feel the weight of that, Lord. And that we would go out into this lost, broken, deceived world with this glorious gospel message to save lost souls. God, please use us to save souls. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.